This episode of The Dairy Show is sponsored by the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. As a producer, you witness the impact of genetics on your herd every day and have a vested interest in the strength and reliability of the U.S. genetic evaluation system. Learn about the advancements made in dairy cattle genetics over the past decade and what is on the horizon on Wednesday, October 4th from 8 to 11.30 a.m. in the Tanbark at the 2023 Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding Industry Meeting. A decade of CDCB, genetic advancement through pre-competitive collaboration. More information at uscdcb.com. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome to The Dairy Show. I am your host, Lisa Benke. Today, we'll be speaking with Jonathan Lamb of Oakfield Corners Dairy. Jonathan also serves on various boards, including the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding and currently serves as the president of Holstein Association USA. With almost 2,600 of North America's finest dairy cattle slated to parade on the colored shavings at World Dairy Expo this year, it's hard not to focus on genetics. And that is precisely why we are talking to Jonathan today. Jonathan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as owner of Oakfield Corners Dairy? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. And, and thanks for the invitation to be here today. I'm happy to be here. So I'm one of the owners of Oakfield Corners Dairy here in Oakfield, New York. I'm a 12th generation farmer and, and with my wife, Alicia, and our family and my brother, Matthew, and his family were the main caretakers of all the dairy cattle at Oakfield Corners. How many animals do you house there? So we actually have four milking facilities. There's three in the state of New York and one in the state of Ohio. So all together, we're milking a little over 10,000 cows. So I mentioned that we're a 12th generation farmer. We still think of ourselves as a family farm, but we have expanded over the years. That's an awful lot to manage. And today, with the focus being on genetics, we wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the ET and the IVF programs that you have going on at Oakfield Corners Dairy. Can you describe that facility and how you grew into that facet of the business, Jonathan. Sure. As I grew up, I always had an interest in genetics and 4-H and junior Holstein clubs. My wife, Alicia, grew up in Florida and she shared that same passion. And so when we came back to our home farm in 1996, a long time ago, we kind of fired up a little bit of a genetics program. And our passion really started with show genetics. We were buying into some good cow families and doing a little bit of showing and we always had a few genomic cattle, but it was mostly show genetics. And then in 2008, with the advent of genomics, and then a few years after that, with IVF getting really popular, really ramped up our ET and IVF programs. And so today, we transfer about 7,500 to 8,000 embryos per year. Almost all of those embryos are IVF embryos. We're a satellite facility for both Transova and for Bovatech. And most of the work that we do is for index cattle. We do have a passion for, for showing. So we do, of course, do some ET work with showing. And then on the side, we also have a small Wagyu operation. So around 90 
probably 94% or so of the transfers we do are for index and another 4% would be for show cattle and then the remainder would be for Wagyu. The Wagyu, are you selling directly meat? How are you merchandising your beef? We deal with Wagyu genetics, so we don't really market a lot of direct Wagyu beef. We have done some, but that's not our main goal. So we're breeders of cattle, and in this case, beef cattle. And so we did have a Wagyu sale a year and a half ago and very successful. And so we have a genetic population of Wagyu and we use IVF technology to try to increase the genetics as well as genomics in our Wagyu herds. So my apologies, Jonathan, I didn't realize that in addition to the dairy herds, you're also maintaining the select beef herd as well. Where is that herd housed? We do house them in pens adjacent to dairy cattle. So like they're kind of in the same environment. Wagyu cattle are, are a little more fragile than Herefords and Angus, so they take a little extra care. But you know, the Wagyu breed was intriguing to us and we got plenty to do but every now and then we need a little bit of spice so we bring in some new things and that was an example of that and so uh, we have fun breeding some wagyu cattle been very successful in that the wagyu genetics are so highly sought after your genetic selection program has been successful whether we're talking about the beef herd or the dairy herd can you share with us jonathan what genetic traits do you select for and Maybe how has that changed over the years since you began developing your own herd? That's a great question. And I hear a lot of dairymen answer this in different ways, but we consider ourselves to be index breeders. And so we try to use indexes. And of course, the TPI formula is the number one index I use. And it makes sense as president of the Holstein Association as the caretaker of that formula. But we feel like we can make progress on a lot of traits all at the same time. And sometimes there's some bulls that rank high in TPI, but they have kind of a black eye, a trait that they don't do very well in, but they may, they do a lot of other traits that they do well in. And we like to correctively mate those traits that need help and then not kind of toss aside genetics from a single bull or cow family or heifer that may have a shortcoming in some area. So index breeding is really how we select. And that doesn't mean we don't look at individual traits from time to time, but we feel like we can make progress on all the traits all at the same time by using index. We have so much information at our fingertips to make decisions. And like you just pointed out, Jonathan, there are as many breeding philosophies as there are people doing matings out there. So let's talk a little bit about that. You talked about obviously the, the TPI formula is still very important. And now with the advent of genomics, we know so much more about the cow's genetic makeup and what her genetic abilities are. And that has, in a short amount of time, helped us decide. I know there's always been a debate about how much a cow's performance is due to her environmental care and how much is her genetic makeup. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So genomics, I mean, that's something that really gets me excited because, you know, genetics are a passion of ours. And so when genomics came about, it was something we embraced very quickly and for, for a few different reasons. And one of those you, you just mentioned, at a really young age, we can tell with a lot more accuracy the genetic merit of an animal. And so what that allows us to do is decrease the generation interval so we can breed with bulls and with heifers at a younger age and feel confident that most likely these genetics that, that they have are going to be favorable for the future. Also, in the old days, we had herd mate deviations. And so that was a system that was, you know, it really did allow us to make a lot of progress, but it was a system that had some flaws. And so if an, if an animal on purpose or not on purpose got care better than her, her mates, she would probably have a good herd mate deviation and that could skew the system. And it did at times. And so 
again, it was a good system. We made a lot of progress, but since the advent of genomics, we've been making progress faster than we ever had before. And on top of that, with all of the increased importance that genetics has received, whether it be from dairy journals or or pharmaceutical companies, dairymen are paying attention to genetics at such a higher rate than they ever had before. And again, somebody who's passionate about genetics, that gets me excited. And so I'm happy that people realize how important genetics are in their bottom line and are selecting for it and willing to pay a higher dollar for better genomic merit or genetic merit bowls than they ever had before. So I just think that the, the future is exciting, but as exciting as the progress we've made in the in the last 15 years with genomics and how much better our two-year-olds now are than they were 10 or 15 years ago is, is mind-boggling to me. And again, it gets me excited to wake up in the morning and put my boots on and come into Farm. We all need to be excited to get out of bed in the morning and go out to the barn. So Jonathan, what is the youngest that they collect bulls anymore? That's topic for debate, but each bull is a little bit different. But you know, somewhere in that 10 months to 14 months range and sooner the better with those really high bulls, right? And so that's something a lot of times I'm talking to our genetics providers about is, you know, can we get these bulls, you know, into our hands a little bit more quickly, the semen into our hands more quickly so we can use them a little bit more quickly. At World Dairy Expo, we celebrate the premier sire banners, and it's interesting how many years some of those sires can stand at the top of the pile. And while that is really great that you have the same premier sire of the show for multiple years on end, it does make people come into question and say, are we tightening up or are we expanding our gene pool at any given time? Do you believe that genomics is helping us to expand upon our genetic pool? You know, that's a good question. I think that dairymen, both the United States and across the world really have to pay attention to the diversity of pedigree. And it can be a challenge in that we all want to use the highest and best genetics. But if we don't keep our pedigrees diversified, then we, we risk nearing our genetic pool. I would say dairymen have done overall a good job of uh, using a variety of different pedigrees and getting that diversity of pedigree. But it is something that bears attention because it, you know it's something that we work on at our farm quite a bit. Another thing that we notice at World Dairy Expo, again, it's the global industries meeting place. And U.S. genetics have been sought after for many, many years. And we've had many ambassadors from the U.S. travel to countries outside of the confines of the United States. Would you say that U.S. dairy cattle genetics have permeated the world? And if so, what has made U.S. dairy genetics the envy of the world? Yeah, I definitely agree with the statement that our dairy genetics are desirable globally. And I think there's a, a number of reasons. One is our large and robust population size. We have a lot of cows, and so we're able to get a lot of information from those cows. The diversity in our genetics and the breeding philosophy of the dairy in the United States. I think that diversity and breeding philosophy is something that I like to embrace because I think it's definitely a big strength of ours. The scientists and researchers at Agile USDA and the council, they also add to our strength. They're bringing new traits in all the time, continuing the processes of how we evaluate our traits. But one of the biggest reasons is our robust phenotypic data collection, our records, our milk production records, confirmation records, our health records, DHI. That is really important as we try to recalibrate the genomic data to the actual phenotypic environmental data and what goes on. And so we see bulls from time to time that go up or go down when they get in phenotypic environmental data added to their evaluation. 
And that's really important so that we so we make sure we're making the progress the way we hope we are. You bring up a really good point too, Jonathan. As important as this new advent of genomics is, we know so much about the genetic composition of an animal, but that phenotypic data, as you just stated, is still so critically important. And maybe let's talk about the people that collaborate with the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding to make that database so robust, as you pointed out. So this is something that's a concern of mine. As a dairyman, it's a concern of mine, and it's a concern of mine as somebody who's passionate about genetics, that we keep having all that phenotypic data uh, feed into the system. And so we'll take our farm, for example. Uh, We DHI test once a month. We collect milk samples. Our health data goes into the system, and then we score on a regular basis. So the confirmation data goes into the system. And it's not something that we're going to discontinue. We'll we'll keep doing it. But I think that right now, the method by which dairymen are compensated for their data is to get genomic tests at a reduced rate. My concern is that going forward, that that's not going to be enough of an enticement, you know, to continue that. And so I think it's something that the Council for Dairy Cattle Breeding and the dairy industry at large in the United States is going to have to wrestle with, because if we see that that data is going down, then I think we need to get our arms in front of it. And I want to be clear about this. We're not at a danger level right now, but I do think that we could collect more phenotypic data, more environmental data, more milk records more health records than we're doing at this time. And it's something that it bears some attention. It's kind of ironic that technology almost is the enemy of this marvelous database that we've built. And I say that because when you think about all of the on-farm tools that we have nowadays, where, where farms basically can silo their information, they can collect so much herd health data and honestly can do inline milk testing, all these things that can be done on-farm. When it doesn't go through a dairy records processing center or or if that information isn't collected by a classifier, as you just pointed out, it makes it harder to contribute that data to the national database that we've relied on since, well, 1905, when that first milk testing was recorded. I think that that's something that the dairy industry can't discount is how very valuable that shared database is and what it yields in terms of information that's that's made us push our genetic base forward over the years. It's because we willingly shared data. And you just brought that up, that there is, it's not a critical point right now, but it's something that we have to be mindful of. All of us that that breed dairy cattle, if we fail to share our phenotypic data, we are impacting that big database that has served us so well in terms of all of the information that it pushes back to us in terms of selection information. And if we could get back to that too, we talked about your program and what you select for. So you're selecting for index. Jonathan, tell us about the markets that you sell to internationally. Our biggest outlet for our genetics would be through selling bulls to stud. And of course, those bulls then go worldwide. And we work with a number of different AI companies and really good partnerships with different AI companies. But that's the number one way that our genetics reach a worldwide market. Other avenues would be to selling embryos. And we do sell some embryos, mostly to Germany and Japan. But we feel really good when our genetics is able to go worldwide. And it's something to be really proud of. You talked, Jonathan, about the valuable research that USDA Agile is performing. And that gets down to isolating 
genetic traits that are both desirable and undesirable. Can you talk about that a little bit about what research is currently being done and, and what traits are being sought to enhance and those that we're hoping to eliminate from our dairy herd? I'll bring up two traits that are being worked on right now. And there's a lot of things being worked on. So we'd have to have another whole podcast to talk about that. But as a dairyman, I'm going to talk about some of the things I'm excited about. The first one is that there's a milking speed task force. And you just mentioned technology a minute ago. And so at one of our operations, we have a 72 stalled robotic rotary It's called the Dairy Pro-Q. And we have a lot of data that comes in with that rotary. And one of those is milking speed. We record the milking length of every cow, every milking of every day. We milk three times a day. And a lot of times, one of the bottlenecks in bringing new traits in is getting good environmental or phenotypic data. And here's an example where we have really good data that exists. We know there's a genetic component to it. And we're not doing anything with it right now. And so the scientists have been embracing that. And I'm hoping that in the next year or so, we have some milking speed analysis and a trait that we can breed for with milking speed. And we talked about index breeding and milking speed would only be a small portion of what we would breed for. But if we can make progress for that at the same time, that would be fantastic. And we know that there's a lot of foreign countries that already have milking speed evaluations. And they do these evaluations just by simply asking the dairyman, is this cow fast or slow? And they're able to get surprisingly good heritabilities from that. So this is a really exciting trait that has good potential and can impact our bottom line because there are cows that don't milk as fast at times. And those are genetics that are undesirable that we'd like to protect from. Another thing that, that's been getting a lot of attention in the Holstein breed is the early onset muscle weakness syndrome. And so some people call this lateral recumbency. This is not a declared undesirable recessive at this point in time, but it it is something that we are watching and that we're concerned about. We're working with the scientists, both at the council and at USDA, to come up with a more accurate haplotype so that we can get information on, on how to breed it out of our Holstein breed. It's a very difficult trait to understand, and that's why probably we, we haven't declared it an undesirable recessive yet, because we know that we don't understand everything about this trait. It's not just a simple dominant recessive, because there's other traits that seem to be playing into it. But that's something that's been getting a lot of attention at our council meetings, and rightfully so. We're starting to get information so that we can protect against it. Again, we don't understand it, but we know enough about it that if we can give our breeders and our farmers the tools to avoid a carrier-to-carrier mating, that would be better for everybody. Suffixes. Holstein Association USA used to put suffixes on animals. A mule foot, for instance, or RC used to be for red carrier. Are suffixes still as important to our registration paper protocols as they once were? I'm not sure what the current rules and suffixes are, but if something is labeled with an undesirable recessive, then it'll be part of the pedigree. So if there's a gene test and if it's tested free or uh, as a carrier, it's labeled. Again, as an index breeder and somebody who thinks that all genes might have value, it pains me to discount the genetic value of an animal simply because it has one undesirable recessive gene. And a lot of times a bull or a heifer 
heifer might do a lot of really good things for our Holstein breed, but they have one gene that we don't want to have in the population. In that case, I would still try to breed with that animal, but I would protect against that. And in most cases, within a few generations, you can be rid of that one gene that's causing problems. And and if you're not, then it's probably because you're continuing to breed with an animal because he or she has a lot of genetic merit that you don't want to lose from the breed. So uh, just a little plug for me because we don't take a really harsh view of an animal that have one gene that we may not like. We sort of have danced around this answer with the discussion that's taken place thus far, but Jonathan, dairy farm data is it's what powers reliable genetic evaluations in the United States. So could you boil it down for our listeners? How the CDCB, the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding, stewards your dairy data and that that everyone else in the dairy population is contributing, and how do they convert it into information that breeders can use? Well, that's going to be kind of a long answer, and I'm not sure I'm the best one to answer, but I can say that both the breed associations, in our case, the Holstein Association, takes uh, that role as steward of the data very seriously. And with our DHIA associations, we use Dairy One, and then the Dairy Records Processing Center that we we use is Agritech Analytics out in California. They, in turn, take that very seriously as being stewards of the data. And from there, the milk data goes to the Council for Dairy Cattle Breeding. And then, of course, scores, confirmation goes directly from the breed associations to the council. And I can tell you at every step of the way, they do take the role as being stewards of that data very seriously. And it does get discussed sometimes at length. We want to make sure that anybody has access to the data, is authorized to have access to the data. If they are, they've signed the appropriate legal documents so that everybody understands what's going on with them. We talk about this at every meeting almost and just making sure that we've crossed our T's and dotted our I's. So we take that really seriously. From there, the scientists at the council and USDA, they number crunch the data with really big computers that have millions and millions of records. And that's how they come up with the indexes. As a dairyman, at times you feel like there's some blind faith in what they're doing. They're using herd mate deviations, and they have a lot of different data checks that go through. But I can tell you from years and years of breeding dairy cattle, if the council or the scientists or breed association say a bull is going to have daughters with a lot of milk, if you use that bull a lot, you're going to see that come through, right? And so it doesn't matter if it's confirmation, if it's milk, if it's butterfat, if it's percent butterfat, genetics work. And at times, there's a little bit of blind faith in the data. I tease the scientists from from time to time and tell them, I hope they didn't forget to carry the one as they were doing their mathematics there, but they are really an asset to us and to our breed and the dairy industry and all the work that they do. Speaking of assets, I think that all of us who breed dairy cattle owe a big debt of gratitude to the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding and the USDA Agile scientists, the cooperation, the information that they collect and steward. I think that's a great word that you use, the stewardship that they have of that huge database. It's information that we as dairymen can't possibly process ourselves, but collectively they boil it down to information that is critical for our mating decisions. And so to that, again, we owe a debt of gratitude. Jonathan, in your estimation, how do we keep this collaborative system healthy? 
How do we keep people contributing to that database? That's an excellent question. And so really that's up to the board of directors for the council to make sure that stays on track. Now, they're not the only ones, and certainly there's a lot of opinions and of people that everybody takes seriously, but the council board is made up of the DHIA associations, the Dairy Records Processing Association, NEAB, National Association of Animal Breeders, the Bull Suds, and then PDCA, the Breed Associations. And so we all come into these meetings and we have our respective hats that we're wearing, but we need to, for the good of the dairy industry, we need to kind of move those hats aside for a little bit and try to make progress for everybody all at once and rising tide lifts all ships. And so I can tell you here recently, there was a few different initiatives to help with that. In April in Louisville, the council board had a strategic session where we talked about our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for a day and a half. We kind of put them all into different buckets. Zhao Durr, the chair of the council, he's uh, working on coming up with initiatives that we're, we're going to be working on based off of that strategic session. Just last week, which would be the third week of August, the CDCB held a national cooperative data dairy workshop. All the stakeholders from the different organizations, whether they be genomic labs, AI studs, breed associations, dairy records processing centers, DHIAs, and the council scientists and USDA scientists all came together and talked about what are some of the bottlenecks? Where are things being held up? How can we have more freer exchange of data? What do we need to watch out for? And the really nice thing about this, there were over 100 people at this workshop, but it was the people that were doing the work on a day-to-day basis. So the people that see where the hangups are or where the bottlenecks are. And so having different programs like that workshop and strategic sessions is how hopefully we can continue to stay on task for the good of the dairy industry. I can't thank you enough. As if managing over 10,000 cows and generating 7,500 embryos on, a, on an annual basis isn't enough work, you're contributing that producer voice that's so essential to the research that's being conducted and to the decisions that are being made on how we advance our U.S. genetics. So thank you for contributing your talents to Holstein USA and to the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding and for joining us here today on The Dairy Show. Again, as we close, Jonathan, in your estimation, what do you think our next genetic milestone will be in the dairy industry? For genetic milestones, I like to not try for grand slams and home runs. I try for base hits. And so I think we're going to continue to see small incremental gains and and hopefully a state of continual improvement. And as you gave me that wrap up there, I just want to make sure that both at my home farm, that I recognize my team and my wife and my family, because any successes that I've ever enjoyed come because somebody else behind me did a nice job. And and that's really true with my role in the Holstein Association as well. I mean, we're blessed with a great board. The Council is of Dairy Cattle Breeding has a board of great minds, and the staff at both organizations are tremendous. And so I usually don't do anything but try not to get in their way. And so all those successes that we've enjoyed are, are because of their effort. Well, Jonathan, we look forward to seeing the progress that you make at Oakfield Corners Dairy. We look forward to seeing the progress that Holstein USA makes. And we're certainly looking to learn more about the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. I know that there is an industry meeting that will be taking place at World Dairy Expo on October 4th, starting at 8 a.m. Could you share a little bit with that, from a producer perspective, why shouldn't you miss that CDCB industry meeting on October 4th? Well, it's a great opportunity to hear what's going on with the council. It's a great opportunity to talk to other dairymen that are interested in genetics. 
And it's been a really popular event at World Dairy Expo. And we actually changed the venue this year because we were bursting the seams last year. So it's been really successful and hope that everybody gets a chance to attend. I think they work on a simulcast. So if you can't be in Madison, Wisconsin on October 4th, hopefully we can get it where you can see it online. I think it's a great time. And a lot of times when you're at these meetings too, you learn as much from in the hallway and it's going to be a well-attended event by a lot of dairy producers who I think very, very highly of. So I learned from them as well as from the presenters. The networking opportunities and the connections you can make at World Dairy Expo are boundless. We hope that you are able to join us October 1 through 6 in Madison, Wisconsin for this year's show. It's the 56th edition of World Dairy Expo, and it promises all that is good about the dairy industry. We've got the world's largest dairy-focused trade show. We've got industry experts on hand that you can interact with. We've got the world's greatest parade of dairy genetics taking place again starting on Sunday, October 1st with a Junior Holstein show and ending on Friday with our Parade of Supreme Champions. So please join us in Madison, Wisconsin, October 1 through 6. We look forward to seeing you there and I will remind you now to buy your tickets in advance. Discount ticket prices are available through October 3rd. And again, we'll see you in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you, Jonathan, for being our guest today. Thanks, Lisa. My pleasure. Again, we want to thank the sponsor of this episode of The Dairy Show, the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. Whether selecting a mating for your next expo winner or utilizing genomics to make management decisions, learn about your part in reliable genetic evaluations through the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding at uscdcb.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.